clear the way for the king. A few years ago, a really important visitor came to my work and his, and his entourage, and uh, he was a CEO of a massive company, and he was coming to have a look round to see what we were capable of. Now, I work for a small business in a fairly tired-looking industrial estate in a fairly tired-looking building in that industrial estate, and it was clear in our current state that we wouldn't give a very good impression. So the week before the visit, my boss told me in no uncertain terms that my desk was an absolute disgrace and all the surrounding area, and it needed a complete overhaul. Now, it wasn't just my area. It was a whole building and, and other buildings that we had. It, we filled skips with junk. We got rid of all the weeds. We painted floors. We painted walls, and I tidied my desk. Walkways were remarked. Barriers were put up to hide things that we, we couldn't get rid of, but we didn't want him to see. We were told it was crucial that we were ready for this visit. It could mean some fantastic business coming our way, but for that to happen, we needed to be ready. John the Baptist came with a very clear message. Clear the way for the king. You need to be ready for him when he comes. Now, some time has passed since those events of chapter 2, both Jesus and John are well and truly adults by now, and the time has come for them to appear in public. So what's been happening in the intervening time? See, Luke tells us at the end of the first chapter that John the Baptist grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. He was now ready to appear in public and proclaim the message we're going to look at these verses under five headings. First heading is the messenger appears. Secondly, the message is proclaimed. Thirdly, the message hits home for some. Fourthly, who is the messenger? And fifthly, the message hits home for others. So first, the messenger appears, the first two verses of chapter 3. Chapter 3. Luke gives us this very full description of the time John began his, began his ministry. It's clear that things have changed, things have moved on since John and Jesus were born. There's been political and cultural change. Emperor Caesar Augustus has died. Tiberius Caesar was now emperor. Pontius Pilate was governor in Judea. And the son of King Herod that we read of in chapter 1 is ruling in Galilee, and his half-brother, Philip, ruled northwest of Galilee, and Lysanias ruled an area further north. See, old King Herod the Great's kingdom had been split into three when he died, so each of his sons could have a share. His son, Archelaus, was, had been deposed because he was such a, a terrible ruler. He was even too cruel for that time. So Pilate had stepped in to rule Judea. There have been religious change as well. Annas and Caiaphas were high priests. In fact, Annas wasn't officially the high priest, but he was considered high priest along with Caiaphas, despite not holding the position. So in amongst all this time and all this change, John, son of Zechariah, had come to make an appearance. God called him out from the wilderness to begin his ministry he was now sufficiently strong in spirit to begin. 
Luke tells us that God's word came to John. That is, God's message came to him. It's a bit like when uh, God told Jeremiah at the beginning of his prophecy, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. So number two, the message is proclaimed, verses three to nine. The message given to John was a simple one. He tells his people, these people, to repent of their sins and be baptized as a public confession that they come and turn to God for forgiveness. Baptism was was used by Jews at that point as a ritual for for Gentiles to join the Jewish religion. Now, it wasn't used on a Jew. They didn't consider themselves unclean like non-Jews. John is telling them The Jews, they need to be baptized as a way of preparing them for the coming Messiah. Whilst the Jews considered all Gentiles to be unclean and in need of baptism, John is saying that they too were unclean and they needed to openly acknowledge their uncleanness, just like the Gentiles. Now the message and the messenger fulfilled Old Testament prophecy. Luke quotes Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 to 5. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough ways smooth and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. John was bold. He proclaimed the message. He shouted it out. He made sure that he was heard. The message is to get people ready For the coming of the Lord, they're going to see him. They better be ready. John is summoning the nation of Israel, God's people. Get ready for the Lord. It demanded change. It demanded a heart change. The message was urgent. God was using John to communicate to his people the the imminent coming of the Messiah. The message proclaims a royal visit. Just like when that VIP was was going to visit my work. Things needed to happen. Clear the way for the king. All the things that were in the way needed clearing out urgently. The many religious laws of the Pharisees and the scribes, clear them away. All the concern of the political situation and the problems it was causing, clear them away. All pride and arrogance, clear it away. Make a straight path to your heart. All the things that were causing uncertainty, confusion, were to be filled in, leveled off. All the blind bends were to be straightened and the rocky patches made smooth. God's message wasn't going to be tangled up in brambles of deceit or hidden round a blind bend of immorality. Everyone who needs to hear the message will hear the message. Who needs to hear it? All flesh, everyone needs to hear it. Everyone has access to salvation. What's the urgency? God is coming. That's why the message is urgent. Get your heart right. Salvation is coming. God the Father has sent the Messiah and people need to be prepared for him. That's the message we have today. It's the same message We're waiting for the Messiah's imminent return. The message from God today is to repent of your sin and be baptized. Have you done that? Are you you prepared for the coming of the King?
Are you ready? Now Luke tells us that that John proclaimed this message each side of the Jordan River. This was the river that the Israelites crossed to reach the promised land. Many years before, we read it in Joshua chapter 3, he gives us this account of the whole nation crossing it while the priests stood in the middle with the Ark of the Covenant, right in the middle of the River Jordan. And the water was laid up in heaps so that people could cross safely to the promised land. Now before they crossed, they were commanded to consecrate themselves. They were to dedicate themselves to the Lord, just like their ancestors before crossing that river to get to the promised land. John is calling the Israelites to dedicate themselves to the Lord, to the Lord because the promised Messiah is about to arrive. And John speaks directly to the crowds of people and he pulls no punches. He exposes them for what they are. Now, he's made a name for himself by this point. He's a rough and ready guy. He's lived in the wilderness. He suddenly burst onto the scene with this uncompromising message. And he was attracting huge numbers of people. And they wanted to hear what he had to say. Now, John wasn't just going to baptize anybody. He wanted to make that really plain. You venomous snakes. This isn't entertainment. To enter the kingdom of God, you need to repent of your sin. Prove to me you've done that by the way you live your life. Now, what's a snake good at? One of the things it's really good at is camouflage, blending into the surroundings. And the, the father of all lies, Satan, is called a, a serpent for this very reason. He's able to camouflage himself. John knew that some of the people there in the crowd were there under false pretenses. They may put on the faith of sincerity but they hadn't made their path the path straight to their heart when you truly repent of your sin God forgives your sin and your life changes forever repentance is this active turning away from your sin and turning toward God it's a costly thing and it's to be thoughtfully considered Jesus says this later on in Luke chapter 14. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Repentance then is making Lord the Lord number one in your life, above all other things. And this is a requirement for God to forgive us of our sin. He can't be a sideshow. He must be number one. And is he number one for you? Is he number one in your life? Is he number one in my life? Are you sure of that? John goes on. He makes sure that people understand that lineage isn't going to cut it. You may be descendants of Abraham, but God can make descendants of Abraham from stone. It's a damning in indictment of the state of God's people at this point. They got completely the wrong idea of themselves in relation to God. And that's such a dangerous place to be. And you see, John implies that the, the motivation of the people here was fear, not sorrow for their sin. They were fleeing the wrath to come. They were in fear of judgment. It's a warning to us now. So anyone who thinks they can get into heaven 
on any other terms apart from true repentance of sin. There's no other way. Now John tells the crowd that judgment is imminent. The axe is laid at the root of the trees, ready to sever them completely. Any tree that doesn't produce good fruit will be chopped down and thrown into the fire. This imagery comes straight from the Old Testament. We read in Jeremiah chapter 2, this is what the Lord says of his people, I planted you a choice vine from the very best seed. How then could you turn into a degenerate foreign vine? Even if you wash with lye and use a great amount of bleach, the stain of your iniquity is still in front of me. This is the Lord God's declaration. If you don't think you need to repent, the result will be catastrophic. Left in our unrepentant state, we we can only produce bad fruit. We'll be cut down and, and thrown into the unquenchable fire. That's hell. And if we turn to God and repent of our sin, God will change us. Jesus promised to send the Holy Spirit to dwell in us so that we can produce good fruit. So this is what John is doing. He's doing exactly what his father, Zechariah, said he would do. This is what his, his father said. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give his people knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. So number three, the message hits home for some, verses 10 to 14. And this unvarnished message, it's it's shouted out to the crowds, it's had an impact. It's like an arrow, it's pierced right through, straight to the heart of the problem. And some people there, they've, they've understood that they're guilty before God. But what does a repentant life look like? It's a good question to ask. What does it mean? What does it mean for me? What, what, what am I, what's going to change? So John gives some practical answers that spoke right into their lives. Share what you have spare with those who go without. Such as if you have a spare tunic, give it to someone in need of one. The same applies to food. Give what you have spare to those that go hungry. And there were two feared and despised groups in that crowd as well. The first group were the tax collectors. And these were hated. They collected taxes from their own people to give to the Romans in the process. They collected as much as they could get away with to enrich themselves. They were so despised that they were excluded from religious life. They weren't allowed anywhere near the temple. So what's the answer that John gave to the tax collector's question? Don't collect any more taxes than the government requires. In other words, don't take advantage of your situation by collecting more money than is due. Be honest where dishonesty and greed rule. Now, the second group were the soldiers. These were a feared group. They had power and weren't afraid to use it to get what they wanted. And John's response to them is, be content with your wage. Don't bully or extort to get more money. Don't use your position of power to rob and steal where extortion and bullying rules. Someone once said this, 
Contentment is not the fulfillment of what you want, but the realization of how much you already have. And contentment for us is, is not something that, that comes particularly naturally, but it's essential in the Christian life. We've already seen a picture of contentment in Luke's gospel. Remember Mary's reply to Gabriel's message, I am the Lord's servant, may it happen to me as you have said. How can we be content when we live in a world that's, that's striving always for the next thing? How can we stop it permeating our lives and, and affecting how we think and how we act? Paul gives Timothy the answer to being content. Firstly, he makes this observation. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out. If we have food and clothing, we will be content with these. But those who want to be rich fall into temptation, a trap, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Now he doesn't stop there. He goes on to give Timothy the answer to being content. But you, man of God, flee from these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, Faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Are you content? Are you pursuing things for your own gain, or are you pursuing godly things? Whatever gain you, you get in this life, you're not going to be able to take it with you. You're going to die, and you're going to leave it. But pursuing the things of God has eternal reward. Number four, who's the messenger? Verses 15 to 18. You can imagine this sort of preaching has made a, an impact, such an impact that people were beginning to think that John himself was the Messiah. They were confused. There was speculation in the air. And John wanted to cut that speculation off. This is how he does it. He compares himself to the one who is coming. See, John considers himself to be completely unworthy. He's not even worthy to perform the most menial task for him. That's how much greater Jesus is to John. And John was baptizing using water. But Jesus has the power and the authority to baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. See, Jesus' baptism of us will be final. So those baptized by the Holy Spirit are those who put their trust in Jesus as their saviour. You've repented of your sin and now you're kept in him. Your eternal destiny is secure. This is what Jesus tells his disciples in John 14. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another counsellor to be with you forever. He is the spirit of truth. The world is unable to receive him because he doesn't because it doesn't see him or know him, but you do know him, because he remains with you and will be in you. The baptism of fire is judgment. It's reserved for those who won't repent of their sin. Jesus will bring judgment upon them, and it will be final. And the eternal destiny for the unrepentant is eternal judgment in hell. 
Now, Jesus won't lose those who turn to him. They have the Holy Spirit dwelling in them. And by contrast, Jesus won't overlook those who haven't got the Holy Spirit dwelling in them. So John gives us this picture of of harvested grain being separated from the chaff. Only the wheat is useful. So the winnowing fork separates that from the chaff, which is useless. And the only thing to do with that is to burn it. And John is telling the people this. Listen, what you're witnessing here is nothing compared to what's coming. And you think I'm the Messiah. Get real. He's so much greater than me. He's the one that will make all this possible. My baptism is to prepare you for his baptism. Are you ready for the baptism of Jesus? Number five, the message hits home for others, verses 19 to 20. Now the message John proclaimed was uncompromising. It's for all flesh. Nobody was immune to it, not even Herod, ruler of Galilee. Now Herod had left his first wife for Herodias, his half-brother Philip's wife. And John called out Herod for this and challenged him on many other things that he'd done as well. Now John's ministry was public. So he's calling out Herod's sin in public, right in front of the crowds of people, all around the Jordan. And I'm sure this must have caused quite a stir. I'm sure to Herod's eyes as well, this upstart must have come from nowhere. He was this rough and ready bloke. He's rough and ready as they come. How had he the nerve to speak about him and call him out like this? And the people were spreading rumors that this John was, was the Messiah. This was getting a bit too close for home. Perhaps he'd got a, an experienced advisor or, or two that reminded Herod what happened when his father, Herod the Great, was ruler. And they said to him, around 25, 30 years ago, something that could be connected to this happened. You know, People were looking for the king of the Jews. But your father was the king. So just like your father did, you need to stamp it out. Or there'll be an uprising. So it's clear that Herod was using his position of power to do what he wanted. He ruled with impunity. So rather than deal with the situation honestly, he uses his position to get rid of the problem and John is put in jail. Luke's verdict of Herod is damning. He added this sin to his many others. John's ministry is short, but it's caused a, quite a stir. It's affected everyone who's heard him. Going from the top to the bottom of society. It's clear that this message isn't something that people could dismiss. It gets to the heart. And this message gets to the heart now. It gets to people's hearts. And the question is, what have you done about it? Have you received it like the tax collectors and the soldiers? Or have you rejected it like Herod? I've got four things that I want us to think about as we, as we wrap up. 
Firstly, the gospel message is simple. That's not to say it's simplistic. The message is so profound that we can spend all our lives studying it and never get close to fully comprehending it. We can't fully wrap our minds around it, and we never will. Not on this earth. And when I was at college, um, I had to study a piece of music by Mozart, and I had to really get down to the nuts and bolts of what was going on, what chord progressions he was using, what key he was in, all that sort of thing, rhythm, tempo, blah, blah, blah. And what struck me, after really getting down to the nuts and bolts of this particular piece, that it looked really simple on the page. It looked really straightforward. I could play it. It's not particularly hard. But it was absolutely full of brilliance. It was just the way he progressed from one key to another. He used rhythm to such good effect. He knew how to write for the, for the instrument. I realized when I started looking into it that nobody but a musical genius could have done it. See, the gospel message is, is so easy to understand. It can be explained in one sentence. But no one but God could conceive it or make it happen. We need to have responded to this message by calling upon the Lord in repentance of our sin. It's that simple. This is what Paul tells us in Romans 10. There's no distinction between Jew and Greek because the same Lord of all richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The gospel message is simple. Number two, the gospel message is practical. The message isn't just a a sort of airy-fairy spiritual message. It affects the whole being. God calls us out of the kingdom of darkness into his kingdom of light. light, And we can no longer live the way we used to live. And the crowds that came to John understood that. They understood that their lives needed to change. And John's instruction to them in a nutshell was this, look out for those more needy than you and be content. Your sufficiency is not in the things of the world anymore. It's in Jesus Christ. That changes your outlook so dramatically. The things of this world don't have a hold on you as they did before. Proverbs chapter 30 says this, Keep falsehood and deceitful words far from me. Give me neither poverty nor wealth. Feed me with the food I need. Otherwise, I might have too much. (coughs) And deny you, saying, Who is the Lord? Or I might have nothing and steal, profaning the name of my God. Number three, the message of the gospel is divisive. The message deals with our heart, our pride. And the message demands a response from everybody. And just as Simeon prophesied to Mary all those years before, that Jesus and his message would cause the fall and rise of many in Israel. Herod's actions against John have proved this already. Mary herself said, he has done a mighty deed with his arm. He has scattered the proud because of the thoughts of their hearts. Mary said that the proud are scattered. They're like chaff that's separated from the wheat and thrown into the fire. 
Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Otherwise, you'll be scattered. Number four, the gospel message is unstoppable. I'm sure Herod's father, Herod the Great, thought he'd probably put a stop to this King of the Jews nonsense. However, it's not even three decades later, and it's still going on. Herod puts a stop to it by putting John in jail. But that doesn't stop the message. We read at the beginning of chapter 3 that there's been a huge change in power, um, a change in political power, a change in religious power, a change in emperor. Herod the Great was dead. His kingdom split into three. God's message keeps going. They can't stop it. What is set in motion cannot be stopped. And Luke, he quotes Isaiah chapter 40 earlier in this chapter in reference to John. And the verses that follow after that particular reference say this. A voice was saying, cry out. Another said, what should I cry out? All humanity is grass and all its goodness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fade when the breath of the Lord blows on them. Indeed, the people are grass. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God remains forever. The question for us all tonight is, have you cleared the way for the king? Is your heart ready for him? Are you prepared for his appearing? If not, you need to repent of your sin to him, and he is just unwilling to forgive you of your sin. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gospel message. We thank you for the ministry of John the Baptist. We thank you for his clarity. We thank you for his um, complete and utter dedication to getting the message out, Lord. And we pray that you would give us that desire to be so clear um, as we live our lives on this earth, to proclaim that message, the message that the only message that is worth hearing, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And Lord, we pray that everyone here in this building now would, would know of that salvation. We pray for those that may not, or those that we know that may not, that you would turn their hearts so that they would come uh, to you, Lord, in repentance of their sin. We pray now as we um, come to share communion that you would be with us, Lord, and that you would prepare our hearts to remember that great sacrifice that you made on the cross of Calvary. In Jesus' name, amen. Before we um, share communion, we're going to sing once more. We have heard a joyful sound. Jesus saves.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for that message. Jesus saves. And we pray, Lord, now that you be with each one of us, that you would keep us and guide us in the week ahead, Lord. Help us to look to you for our strength and not go on in our own. And we pray that you would blessing be upon us now in Jesus' name. Amen.